Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me at this time to the Gospel of John. And we've made our way to chapter 7. So we are in John chapter 7. We're going to look at the first 13 verses. John chapter 7. We'll begin in a moment in verse 1. Sometimes there is a very big difference between expectations and reality. You expect something, but the reality is you get something else. This is true a lot of times, especially when we're traveling. If you go somewhere that you've never been before and you have an expectation in your mind what it's going to be like, for example, if you were to go to China to visit the Great Wall of China, perhaps you've seen some of the pictures and it looks beautiful and you have this expectation, but perhaps when you arrive, you'll find that the reality is more like this. Or maybe you're like me and you love museums and so you want to go to Paris to see the Mona Lisa. It's beautiful. You're going to see it up close, you can't wait. This is your expectation, but when you arrive, the reality is this. Maybe you decide, well, I'm going to try something new. Take up a new hobby. Do something I've never done before. I'm going to go skiing. And so in your mind, you see yourself on the slopes. You know that you are going to look like this, but in reality, you look like this. Maybe you decide to go to the beach. You want to see a beach that you've never visited before, and you've seen the pictures. It's beautiful. You, you say, okay, I'm going to go there. You have this expectation. When you arrive, however, the reality is this. Two years ago, my family went to South Dakota to see Mount Rushmore, one of America's great national monuments. Millions of people every year go to see Mount Rushmore. And so, of course, we go with this expectation. And when we got there, the reality was this. <laughs> Once again, there can be a very big difference between our expectations, how we think things are going to be, and what is reality. Now, I tell you this because I believe there are many people who have false expectations when it comes to following Jesus. There are many people who expect the Christian life to be a bed of roses. They expect smooth sailing all the time. They expect that every decision will be easy, and they'll never stumble or fall. They'll never get discouraged or depressed. They're just going to be liked and loved by everybody all the time. That's their expectation. The reality is it's costly to follow Jesus. The reality is we will go through trials and tribulations the reality is we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Is it worth it? Well, of course it is. A million times, yes. Simply knowing Jesus more than makes up for everything that it costs to follow him. 
having said that, it is important for our expectations to line up with reality in the Christian life. This morning we're beginning John chapter 7, and at the very beginning of this chapter, he says, after these things. Now, when John says after these things, he does not mean immediately after. There's actually about six or seven months in between John chapters 6 and 7. Now, Jesus was very busy during this time. It's not like he was on vacation, visiting the Mediterranean Sea or anything like that. No, he was doing many things that are recorded for us in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, it was during this time that the transfiguration took place. It was during this time that Jesus revealed to the disciples explicitly that he would be betrayed and he would be crucified. Many things took place during this six or seven month window, but John does not mention them. John skips over them because John is not thinking chronologically. He is thinking thematically. And so he jumps ahead to carry forward that same idea that we saw at the end of chapter 6. At the end of chapter 6, we see these multitudes of people in Galilee who abandoned Jesus. We come to chapter 7, and we see the same thing happening in Judea, even in Jesus' own family. So as we look at these first 13 verses... We're going to see what Jesus experienced. We're going to see what we can expect to happen in our lives if we are following Jesus. And I just have to stop and warn you at this point, the points I'm going to make this morning are actually quite negative. These are not positive things that we can expect. But I tell you these things because I believe we're going to see not only the reality, what we can expect in the Christian life, but we're also going to see why it's still worth it to follow Jesus. And first of all, in this passage, we see that we can expect to face opposition. We can expect to face opposition. Look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Notice it was time for the feast of tabernacles. What was that? This was one of three great Jewish festivals, three special festivals on the calendar, and it was kind of like a spiritual camping trip. People would come to Jerusalem, and they would make tents uh, out of branches and palms, and for eight days, they would camp and live in those tents. This was meant to be a reminder to them of the time when their forefathers wandered for 40 years through the wilderness, and yet during that time when they were living in 
tents, God still led them. God still provided for them. So this was kind of a neat way for the parents to teach their children a little bit about their history. Leviticus 23 said that this was supposed to be a joyful festival. The historian Josephus said that it was the most joyful time in Jerusalem every year. And besides, camping is fun. I mean, if you don't like camping, you just don't know how. Sorry, I'm just speaking the truth in love here, folks. All right. But this festival was meant to be a holy time, but also a fun time. It really was for them the most wonderful time of the year, but we have a problem. The problem is that the Feast of Tabernacles meant going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem meant going to Judea. Verse 1 says that Jesus would not go to Judea. Why? Because the Jews sought to kill him. Now remember, in John's gospel, when he says the Jews, he uses that phrase specifically to refer to the religious leaders. In chapter 5, we're told that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus for two reasons. He healed on the Sabbath, and he claimed to be equal with God. And so Jesus went to Galilee for this reason. That's why he went in the first place. They wanted to kill him, but at that time, Jesus still had about one more year of ministry before the cross. So he transitioned his ministry to Galilee for a season. Now, Jesus faced opposition, and those who follow Jesus can expect to face opposition for doing so as well. The question becomes, what do you do and how will you respond when you face opposition for the cause of Christ? First Peter says, don't act surprised as if something strange is happening to you. Jesus said in Matthew 5, rejoice because they persecuted the prophets before you, and furthermore, great is your reward in heaven. But most of all, do not allow that opposition to keep you from doing what God has called you to do. Because as we read further in John chapter 7, we see that yes, Jesus went to Judea for the feast, and the reason why Jesus went in spite of opposition, in spite of people waiting for him there who wanted to kill him, he went to that feast because in Deuteronomy chapter 16, the law required him to do so. You see, Jesus came to fulfill the law for us on our behalf. He perfectly kept the law so that he could then suffer and die for those who had broken the law. He exchanged his law-keeping for our law-breaking. He exchanged his innocence for our guilt when he died on the cross for us. And the point is, there was not any amount of opposition that was going to keep 
Jesus from keeping the law and doing what God's Father called him to do. Don't you let opposition keep you from God's will either. Yes, as followers of Christ, we can expect to face opposition, but we can also expect to experience rejection. We can expect to experience rejection. Look at verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, verse 3 mentions Jesus' brothers. Remember, Jesus was virgin-born. Joseph was not his biological father. Matthew 1 says that Joseph and Mary were wed, but they did not have relations until after Jesus' birth. So these would have been his half-brothers. He had four younger half-brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Simon and Judas, not to be confused with the Uh, Simon and Judas among the 12 disciples. The Bible also tells us in Matthew 13 that Jesus had sisters. We don't know how many, but plural, so more than one. Jesus had sisters, although they are not named in Scripture. But in verse 3, Jesus' younger half-brothers, they come to him, they come to Jesus to give him some advice. By the way, Have you ever tried giving God advice? Anybody want to admit to that? How'd that work out for you? Probably not very good. Newsflash, God does not need our advice. They came to give Jesus some advice. You know, the funny thing is, it was actually great political advice, but it was terrible spiritual advice. They went to Jesus and said, you know what? You need to go to Judea so that your disciples up there will see the works that you're doing. It sounds to me like the disciples were aware of what happened at the end of chapter 6 when all of these people in Galilee abandoned Jesus. It's like they're saying, Jesus, it's okay. You still have plenty of other disciples up there in Judea. They need to see you. They need to hear from you. So why don't you go on up to Judea and do your thing, do some magic tricks, pull a rabbit out of a hat or something, watch the people get all excited, and see what happens. But Jesus, you got to stop wasting your time in these little country towns in Galilee. you got to go where the people are. I mean... If you want to be an actor, you go to Hollywood. You want to be a singer, you go to Nashville. You want to be the Messiah, they said. You need to take your talents to Judea. Now, if you stop reading after verse 4, you will totally fail to understand what his brothers were doing here. Look at verse 5. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Wow. Even his brothers did not believe 
in him. Now, this is why they're encouraging Jesus to go to Judea. Uh, They knew about his holy character. They knew that he was performing miracles. They probably believed in him as a political Messiah, someone who would free them from the oppression of the Romans, but did they believe in him as the Son of God, the one who was in the beginning, the one who said that one day he will raise the dead, the one who will judge the world? Did they believe in him in that sense? No, they did not And isn't it amazing when we saw in chapter 6 when Jesus said, no one can come to me unless my Father draws them? Do you realize that even includes Jesus' own brothers? Even his brothers did not believe in him. And these were the ones who knew all sorts of things about Jesus that even we don't know. They had all sorts of high, uh, uh, you know, high school stories, uh, uh, childhood stories they could have told. They knew what his favorite color was, what his favorite song was, what his favorite food was. They could tell you all of these things about Jesus, but they did not know him in the way that matters most. Not Yet, Now, let me just pause here and remind you that later on, praise the Lord, yes, his brothers believe in him and they follow him. We see his brothers in Acts 1. They're up there in the upper room before Pentecost waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Two of Jesus's brothers even wrote books of the New Testament. Uh, We know that James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Pentecost. Peter, eventually, yes, they believed in him. But let me ask you this. What in the world would it take for you to believe that your big brother was the Savior, the only Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Son of God? Would that take a little bit of evidence to convince you, or would that take a whole lot of evidence? It would take quite a bit, wouldn't it? And yet, that's exactly what happened after the resurrection when his own brothers encountered him and saw that their older half-brother who was crucified on Friday was alive and well on Sunday. Yes, eventually, even they became followers of Jesus Christ. And this really ought to encourage us. Some of you may have family members who are not believers and folks you've been uh, ministering to for a long time. Keep praying for them. Keep loving them. Uh, Keep serving them. Let your light keep shining and let God do the rest. But if you put all this together, in chapter 6, the crowds abandon Jesus. And in chapter 7, verse 1, The religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. In verses uh, 3 through 5, his own brothers did not believe in Jesus. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like the whole world was against you? Have you ever been to that place where it felt like the whole world was against you and everyone rejected you? If so, 
Jesus understands. Oh, he's been there. And many times we see in Scripture that the very people who should have been for him were against him. Isaiah said that he was despised and rejected. John 1 says he came unto his own, but his own received him not. Jesus experienced rejection, and guess what? Those who follow Christ will experience rejection as well. And when that happens, that is when you're going to have to decide whose approval you're really seeking, whose applause you really desire. Because if you are living your life only for man's approval, you know what's going to happen? It's going to eat you up inside when the world, when man rejects you. On the other hand, if you are living your life for God's approval, it'll be like water off a duck's back when man rejects you because you'll know that you're already accepted by the one who matters most. Remember, the only applause we are meant to seek is the applause of nail-scarred hands. If we're following Jesus, yes, we can expect to face opposition. We can expect to experience rejection. Something else we're going to notice, if we're following Jesus, we can expect to be hated. Remember, I told you these were going to be negative, right? We can expect to be hated. Here's Jesus' response to his brothers in verse 6. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. When Jesus said, my time has not yet come, he wasn't just talking about when it was time to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. He was actually talking about something bigger than that. He was talking about that time in which he would lay down his life on the cross. But in those days, when people would travel from Galilee to Judea, they would normally travel in caravans because there's safety in numbers. That meant everyone would see Jesus. That meant everyone would recognize Jesus. That means the people would announce him before his arrival to great fanfare. If Jesus had traveled with them, it would have been kind of like Palm Sunday, except six months early. Well, it wasn't yet time for Jesus to be betrayed or arrested or tried or crucified. He still had ministry to perform. He was still training his disciples. He was still preparing the people. He still had miracles to do and towns to visit. He still had sermons to preach. The Feast of Tabernacles was a great feast, but it was the wrong feast. His death would not coincide with the Feast of Tabernacles. His death would coincide with the Passover because he was the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what Jesus said to his brothers at the very end of chapter 6, I believe God could say to all of us many times, he said, your time is always ready. We always think it's time for God to do what we want him to do, don't we? We always think it's time. But God's timetable is different from ours. And as you know, God's never early. God's never late. He's always 
on time. He is an on-time God. Jesus is not going to go with his brothers to the feast because it wasn't time for him to lay down his life. And so, look at verse 7. Here's the reason. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet, that's the key word, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. It was easy for Jesus' brothers to say to him, you should go to Judea because they weren't the ones that the religious leaders were trying to kill. That would be Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, uh, the world doesn't hate you. He said, the world hates me. Listen carefully, my friends. The world hates Jesus. The world loves the caricature of Jesus that it has created, which does not remotely resemble the real Jesus. The world loves the Jesus of their own imagination, this Jesus who would never offend anybody, who would never step on anybody's toes, who would never tell you what to do, who would never make any kinds of demands or exclusive claims. Oh, the world loves that Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible Yes, he is hated by the world. And he tells us why in verse 7. Because I testify that its works are evil. That's why, according to Jesus. Because he confronted sin. And he called it what it was. And he preached against it. And he did this in all places, in front of all kinds of audiences, without showing any favoritism. He preached against sin when he was talking to men or women, Jews or Gentiles, the rich or poor, to the powerful, to the weak. And because he confronted sin, he said, that is why the world hates me. So let me ask you this. Why would we expect to be treated any differently? If we're following Jesus 2,000 years later, why would we expect anything different at all? Let me just remind you what Jesus said in John 15. We'll get to this much later on in our study. But in John 15, 18 and 19, he said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. And yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If we are not speaking truth to the world, if we're not confronting sin, if we're not upsetting the status quo, if we're not living lives that are separate and different from this world, the world won't mind. The world won't care. But if we're truly following Jesus, we can expect the same treatment that he received from the world. Yes, we can expect to be hated. I realize that in this country, we really haven't experienced a whole lot of persecution with a few occasional exceptions, sure. But 
some of you come from countries where that is the norm. We haven't had a lot of that here. I could be wrong, but man, I think that that's going to change real soon. And if it does, when it does, the question becomes, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, love your enemies. Bless them who curse you. Do good to them who hate you. Pray for those who use you. That's how we respond. And the only way we can do that is, number one, by the grace of God, as we plead to him for help. And number two, by his spirit at work in us and through us. And that's the only way. But if we're following Jesus, we should expect these things. We should expect to face opposition. We should expect to experience rejection. We should expect to be hated. One other thing we should expect in this text, we should expect to be misunderstood. We should expect to be misunderstood. Look at verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Picture this. Don't miss this. Jesus' brothers were with Jesus, but they left Jesus to go to a religious feast. Do I need to say that again? His brothers were with Jesus. They were with him. And then they left Jesus in order to go to a religious feast. Do you see anything wrong with this picture? Better to stay with Jesus. Now, they're not the only ones to make this mistake. You can fill your life with all sorts of religious activity and miss Jesus in the process. And if you do so, you have committed serious mistake. Jesus' brothers left, and then it says, Jesus also went up. Now, somebody's going to say, oh, pastor, wait a second. Jesus just said to them a moment ago that he wasn't going to uh, the feast because it was not time to go to the feast. And then two verses later, what does he do? He goes to the feast. What's going on here? Well, how many of you understand that the difference between being on time and not on time can be very very small. When my wife was in college, she had a professor who locked the door on time. And if you showed up five seconds late, you were not allowed in class. Sometimes the difference between on time and not on time can be very small. When Jesus' brothers wanted him to go with them to the feast, it was not time. Five minutes after they left, it was time. And now it is time because Jesus wanted to go in secret. He wanted to go incognito. Well, why is that? Because even though he has the power to stop his enemies from killing him, he's not going to court danger. He's not going to intentionally do those things that would, under normal circumstances, bring about his death. So he waited, he let them leave, and then he went separately from them. Look at verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, 
Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. Jesus gets there, and he's got on his robe, and he's got on his coat, and it's probably covering up his head, and he's walking around incognito. And as he's walking around town, as he's walking around the feast, everywhere he goes, he can hear the people talking. They were whispering. And what were they talking about? They were all talking about him, not even knowing that he was in their midst listening in. And what did they say? Some people said, Jesus, I think he's good. You heard about that time where he was here at the pool of Bethesda, and that man had been lame for 38 years, and Jesus healed him? I was there. I saw that. It was amazing. Yes, I think Jesus is good. And then someone else says, "Mm, I don't know about that. You heard what the religious leaders are saying about him? very people who who teach us God's word, they say, he's a deceiver. You better look out. You better be careful with this Jesus guy. Who was right and who was wrong? To some degree, they were all wrong. Of course, Jesus was not a deceiver, but it's also not enough to say that Jesus was a good man or a good teacher or a good example because someone who is merely a good man does not heal the sick and raise the dead and claim to be God. To say that Jesus is merely good is wholly inadequate. They all misunderstood Jesus, all of them at that time. And those who follow Jesus can expect to be misunderstood as well. So stop being surprised when the world does not understand us, when the world does not get us. This world, apart from Christ, is not going to understand who we are or why we believe what we believe, how we live, how we order our lives and our homes. They're not going to get us. Notice what John adds in verse 13. However, no one spoke openly of him, why not, for fear of the Jews. So here are all these people who are talking about Jesus, giving their opinions about Jesus. But meanwhile, it would appear that their evaluation of Jesus was at the very least influenced by their fear of man. Now listen to me carefully. If you base your response to Jesus on your fear of what man will think of you, what man will say about you, what man will do to you, you are going to miss out. You will never follow Jesus. You will never know him personally. You will never experience the infinite blessings of salvation through him. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Notice you got two options. There's the fear of man and there's trusting in the Lord. Which one will it be and which one will it be when it comes to Jesus. 
This morning, I've talked to you about some of those things that we can expect if we're following Jesus. And, and once again, I understand that these things, these four things, are, are negative. But hear me out. We can expect to face opposition. But guess what? 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. What opposition? We can expect to experience rejection. Do you know Romans 15, 7 says, Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. We are accepted in Christ. And if he accepts us, who cares who rejects us? We can expect to be hated. But Romans 8 says there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We can expect to be misunderstood. But 1 Peter says you can cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Listen, God understands. He understands you when no one else does. And that is why we can say, yes, there are these realities. There are these things that we can expect when we follow Jesus. And yet, it's still worth it. It's still worth it to follow Christ. It's still worth it to worship Him and serve Him. And it's still worth it to give Him our hearts and our lives. Would you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we've been reminded in your word this morning of some of what Jesus experienced and some of what we can expect to experience if we are following him. And this is not the only place in your word where it talks about these things, but would you help us, Lord, to take this to heart? Would you help us to manage our expectations from this world, how we expect to be treated by this world, and set our eyes on Christ? And help us to remember that even though it is costly to follow Jesus, it's still worth it. It's still worth it. Father, I pray if there are any here today who have never become followers of Jesus, They've never taken that first step of faith by placing their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. God, how I pray you'd knock on the door of their heart and that this would be their day of salvation, that this would be that day that they acknowledge their sin and just come to you in sweet surrender and say, Jesus, I'm guilty, but you're perfect. And you died for me, for my sins, and you rose again. So I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you as my Savior and as Lord of my life. God, if there's just one here today or listening online right now who needs to take that step, we plead with you that this would be that moment, that they cry out to you and that you would make them a new creation, that you'd give them new life in Jesus Help us all to take what we've read, what we've heard, and apply it to our lives today. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and glory in Jesus.